All right, so there's this uh, dude by the name of uh, King Kim Jong-un uh, over in the uh, North Korea vicinity, and he is the supposed supreme leader of that nation. And it would seem, uh, by, by what we can tell, that the dude is actually out of his mind. And he actually thinks that his military can go toe-to-toe with our military which is a preposterous thought. Like, the, the truth is he is working on various capacities and capabilities, but right now, I'll just tell you the truth, right now, the best thing that he can muster is to launch a glorified bottle rocket in a non-specific direction. That's really all he can do at the moment uh, as far as threatening us over here in the continental U.S. Uh, we have a vastly superior military way better trained, way better armed. We have more missiles and we got better missiles. It is patently absurd that he would think that somehow he could take out the U.S. of A. And if I wanted to, I could even get a chant going right now, right? (laughs) U.S.A., right? It's, It's absurd. The very thought of it is absurd. Well, just to the south of him right now, there's this other nation, South Korea, and right now they are hosting the 2018 Winter Olympics. It just started a couple of days ago, and I'm way more a fan of the Summer Olympics, but I will watch some of the Winter Games. I'm not a big hockey guy, but I really like Olympic hockey. I just like watching Olympic hockey. I, I watched the downhill, the, the, the super G and the triple G, the quadruple G. There's a bunch of Gs. Like, there's a, like the slalom. It's all cool. The, the, the combination stuff, really neat stuff. I enjoy watching that. I like watching the snowboard half, half pipe stuff. That's really neat. The, the flying canned tomato, whatever that dude is. Like what, the stuff that he can do and those guys can do is like utterly amazing. And that during these winter games... I will inevitably, at some point or another, find myself binge-watching curling. And I don't know why. I don't know why. This dude, like there's a, well, it's not a dude. Like it's, it's like there may be a woman doing it. Like a person takes a stone, slides it on ice, and then it's going toward this, non, this target area with these circles. I don't even know what they mean. And like these people like sweep in front of the stone. And they're trying to manipulate the direction and the speed of the stone. And so I'm, I'll watch it. And it's riveting. It's utterly mesmerizing. It makes no, it's shockingly hypnotizing. There's nothing else like it on TV ever. Every four years, I will, I'm drooling. Oh, like I'm just... <laughs> captivated by what's happening it's just and it's glorified shuffleboard it's all it's actually tiddlywinks it's more competitive and exciting than than curling but i will find myself watching it for hours mesmerized that's absurd that i would waste a second watching it but i will do so and i think we all recognize that life is full of the absurd Typically, when we use the word absurd, we use it in a negative fashion. And typically, it applies. But the word absurd only means uh, that which is contrary to human standards. To be absurd is just contrary to our our human understanding, what we would consider to be our human understanding. Uh, For something to be absurd, it basically means that it doesn't fit nicely within our boxes. That's really all it means. For something to be absurd means that it kind of cuts against the grain of our worldly norms. That's what, it, that's what absurd is. So what we're going to see during the series that we're starting today is I want to point out that Christianity is, in fact, absurd. It is way absurd. Uh, we're going to check this out. We're going to see that true Christianity... Not the poser kind, not the fake kind, not the nominal kind, but true Christianity is completely contrary to our worldly thinking. Christian living, the way that it's supposed to be, doesn't fit within the worldly box of what is normal and reasonable. Uh, A non-Christian, someone who is not a follower of Jesus, should look at the life of a believer and think to themselves, that's nuts. 
That's crazy. That doesn't make sense. That's absurd. That's absurd. And the reason that we need a series like this in our day and age in our country is that Christianity, and yes, I purposely put Christianity in air quotes right now, uh, is that Christianity in the U.S. has fallen prey to what is called easy believism. Easy believism is the false teaching that all a person needs to do is simply believe in Jesus with no lifestyle change along with it. Easy believism is the notion or the, the false misguided teaching that all I needed to do is believe in Jesus and still live however I want to live. Easy believism is the misguided falsehood that all I need to do is believe in Jesus and I can still blend into the world and I can still conform to worldly patterns and stuff. So what we're going to do in this series over the next several weeks, we're going to challenge this notion of easy believism. We're going to push back against nominal Christianity. And by nominal, I mean by name only. That people that say, I'm a Christian by name only. Those are what we would call a nominal Christian. We're going to push back against nominal Christianity. And dare I say, we're going to call out snowflake Christianity. We're going to just call out. And what we're going to show is what true, actual, real, sincere, sincere authentic <laughs> biblical Christianity, what it should look like. And let me tell you, it is absurd, but it's good. It's odd. It's weird as the world would reckon it, but it's right. So if you have your Bible with you, and I always hope that you do, I'm going to ask you to open up to the book of Acts. Uh, we always you know, we're going to have the verses on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but, you know, we always want people to bring their own and even a notebook to write and take notes. There's something about the exercise of writing stuff down and seeing it for yourself in, in Scripture that just helps us to learn it and remember it a lot better and apply it to our lives. We're going to be in the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. It's right after uh, the book of John and right before the book of Romans. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. I probably should have said that earlier. Everybody was looking at me like I could see it on your faces. I'm there, but where? So anyway, uh, Acts chapter 16. And what we're just going to do over the next several weeks is that each week we're going to look at a specific aspect of Christianity, an element of Christianity that's absurd when it's done the way it's supposed to be done. And this week we're looking at worship. What is real true Christian worship, and I'm just going to keep saying it. Guess what? Real true Christian worship is, it really is absurd, completely absurd. Now, sadly, our tendency, for those of us who are Christians, our tendency is to make our worship very buttoned up, very starchy, dare I say tucked in, like we, we, we have this thing where we don't want to be considered Jesus freaks. So what do we do? We, we suppress it. We restrict it. We don't want to be uh, someone that is like all into Jesus. We're too afraid of what others are going to think of us. If we actually worship Jesus with our heart and our mind, our body, with our strength, where I'm so afraid of what the person next to me is going to think, we're so, so we constrict it, we sterilize it. It's really, we anesthetize it to not be weird so that it's not absurd because we want it to conform to whatever little bubble or standard or box we think is right and appropriate. So we have to fight against this tendency in our culture to be completely buttoned up, starchy, and tucked in in regards to our worship and actually learn that there is a level of freedom and looseness and joy that should be happening in the heart, in the mind, in the life of a believer when it comes to worshiping God. Because if God is who God is, and he has done for us what he has done, and he will do what he says he will do, then by, by default, by definition, there's no other way around it. Our worship then therefore must be sincere and authentic, practical, fleshed out, 
exuberant and passionate. There should be something different qualitatively and quantitatively different about our engagement with and towards God. It should look to the world to be absurd. The world, when they, they see us, and again, this does not only apply to a gathering on a Sunday morning. This applies to our daily living. That the world, as we are worshiping God 24-7, should look at us like, that is nuts. That is crazy. And ultimately, the world should have one of two reactions to our engagement in our worship with God. What a bunch of freaks. Jeremy's a freak. Brent's a, cre- a freak. Juanita is a freak. Not a creep. A freak. I hope not. What a bunch of freaks. I want to be one of them. Or what a bunch of freaks. I'm going to have nothing to do with them. But we don't want someone to have a reaction. What a bunch of freaks. Eh. And just kind of, it becomes nominal and watered down and gray. Like that's not the reaction someone should have. It should be one or the other. What a bunch of weirdos. I want what they got. What a bunch of weirdos. I'm going to stay away. But and, and it's not that we want people to stay away. We want to invite everyone in. But the, ultimately, the point is that our worship should be distinct, unique, passionate, visible. It should be demonstrated. It's an expression of something else that's going on within our, our hearts. So uh, that's where we're going. So let's get into the text here in Acts chapter 16. Uh, a little bit of background. The Apostle Paul, he's on a missionary journey. He and a few others are traveling around the Mediterranean. What a wonderful trip that must be, right? Uh, They're going around the Mediterranean, and what they're doing is that they're sharing the good news of Jesus. They are making disciples. They're planting churches in various cities. They start out in Israel, and they move up north through Syria. They cut westward through what they called Asia. We call Turkey, and then they would go across the Asian Sea or Aegean. I'll never know which one is pronounced. It's like Caribbean or Caribbean. Anyway, so they, they make their way across the sea there, and they find themselves in the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia, but we would today consider northern Greece. And there in the city of Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, verse 13, it's Saturday, right? That verse tells us that on the Sabbath, so it's Saturday, On the Sabbath, they go to a place outside of the city, to a place where a group of women who happen to be worshipers of the Jewish God, where they're worshiping together and they're praying to God. So Paul and the others, they hear about this group. They go out to hang out with them and specifically to share with them the good news of Jesus. And by God's grace, at least one lady by the name of Lydia, she becomes a follower of Christ there, and and she accepts the gospel. And then in verse 16, we read, As we were going to the place of prayer, so this is a different day. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So the place they had been to before, that place of prayer, had proven profitable. So they go back to it because, well, we had luck. We had a convert the last time we were there. Let's go back. So they go back to that same place. And as they're going there, they meet up with this little girl. I'm assuming she's a little girl, a teenage girl. She's a girl. And she is a slave girl, and she is demon-possessed. The text tells us that there is a spirit of divination within this girl, which is to say that somehow she can actually provide insight into like mysterious things. She is what we would call today a psychic. A psychic. Her services are in great demand in that pagan culture. Like people are wanting to pay lots of money to have their fortunes told. It's no different today. Dionne Warwick or any other psychic network. I mean, people still do that to this day. So anyway, uh, they're willing to pay a lot of money, but this girl does not benefit from her psychic ability. She's a slave. Her owners are the ones who profit 
not this girl, her owners, she's like her, their cash cow. She's an extremely lucrative source of income, and this just makes it really sad and cruel. Because I can't imagine what it would be like to be demon-possessed. Like, that doesn't sound pleasant. Like, I imagine that that's just in, in bondage to darkness, like being gripped in darkness in a way that most of us, all of us, I hope, have never really experienced. Have never experienced. Like, I hope not anyway. If you're there, let's talk afterwards. Uh, but but I, I don't think, but I can't imagine that any, that that would be a pleasant experience for her. She's, in essence a servant of the devil, and she's being used by the devil for his evil purposes. And if that's not bad enough, what makes it really so strikingly awful is that her earthly slave owners, like her masters, are benefiting from her plight. So they're exploiting her for their own gain. Um, I'll just chase a little tangent here. Uh, We live in a day and age and a place where uh, most people don't believe in the devil. And most people don't believe that there's such a thing as demon possession or that it can happen. Okay? To our 21st century ears, to our enlightened modern ears, it is absurd. There's a a famous quote from a, a French short story called The Gambler. It's been quoted in different movies in different ways, but it goes like this. The loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. The greatest trick, the most deceptive trick of the devil is to persuade anyone that he's not real. Because when he's not real or we think he's not real, he has free reign to do whatever he wants to do. So he runs around and folks, he's a liar and he's a thief and he's a destroyer. He prowls around like a lion looking for people to devour. Like he's real in much, much of what we see in the world and in in the terrible stuff around us is due to the influence of Satan and darkness and and the spiritual aspect at play in this world. And just because some of us may not believe it does not make it false. Truth is truth, whether we believe it to be truth or not. So that is just the reality of the situation. And and here he's demon-possessed this girl. He's using her to do the one thing that the devil's out to do, which is obstruct the work of God. Wherever God is at play, wherever light is shining, wherever grace is being spoken about, wherever the love of God is active, you know that there's going to be this spiritual darkness that tries to impose and thwart and stop and obstruct the good work of God. So we move on to verses 17 and 18. It says, she, referring to this poor girl, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The first thing here, and I just think this is funny. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, the apostle to the Gentile world, got annoyed. I think that's comforting. Even mature spiritual people can get annoyed. Oh, I almost had a joke that I almost let fly. I'll keep that to myself. All right. But he's not just annoyed, like most of us get annoyed at nothing. He's actually annoyed for good reason, which is what? This girl is running around saying, these are servants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming, they're proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, why is that annoying? Because isn't that true? It's true. They are servants of the Most High God, and they are teaching and proclaiming and preaching the way of salvation. So why would that annoy Paul? And the reason why is that even though it's true, it requires explanation. It requires qualification. Without explanation, it would have simply served to confuse the Philippians, the people of Philippi. They were polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. You know, Greek mythology or Roman theology? Theology. Mytholo- mythology. 
They believed in multiple gods. To them, the most high God was Zeus. In their culture, in their religion, they had many saviors. Apollo was a savior, and this other god and goddess was a savior. They had multiple saviors. All you had to do for salvation, blessing, and favor was to pray to one of these gods. And so there were many paths, many ways that you can have salvation, whatever that would have meant to, to an individual at the time. So what the girl was saying was true, but it would have only caused confusion to everyone. She's not helping Paul's mission. She's actually throwing a big old kink in the gears. She's throwing a rock and sugar in, in, uh, in the gas tank there. Because uh, they would have just heard, oh, most high God, Savior, okay. Uh, well, this Jesus character, he's just one of many gods. Uh, and this is another way, another way to heaven, let's say. And this is what the devil wants people not to know. The devil does not want anyone to know the one and only most high God. The devil wants to keep everyone in darkness and suppressed in their sin. The, the evil one doesn't want anyone to know the one and only true way to the Father. And in this story, he is using this poor girl to try to keep the light of God from advancing in the world. That's why Paul is greatly annoyed, and that's why he casts out the demon from the girl and how did the girl's masters how did the owners react look at verse 19 but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone they seized paul and silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the ruler so the owners got ticked they got straight up ticked why because they didn't care about the dignity of the girl. They didn't care about the welfare of the girl. They didn't care about her health, mental, psychological, spiritual, physical, of any sort. They only cared that their cash cow was now gone. So they're mad. They're upset. So they lash out. They grab Paul and Silas, and they, they, they just grab them, and they take them to people's court. All right. They take them to the marketplace, which is where the rulers of the city, called the magistrates, where they would conduct court where they would hold court and there these owners like they laid their case against paul and silas which is what happens in verses 20 and 21 it says there these men are jews and they are disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us romans to accept or practice so check this out what is the first thing that they do they throw down the race card some things never change. They throw down the stinking race card. They're Jews. They're not like us. They're foreigners. They're messing everything up. They don't know the way that we live. So the first thing that they do is to attack their, their, their background, their ethnicity, in essence, right? And they're saying, oh, they're disturbing the peace. Well, really, they're not disturbing the peace. All they did was help this girl. If anything, they're bringing peace, right? But no, they're... Disturbing the peace. The second charge is technically true. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. It was illegal in the Roman Empire for you to teach anything contrary to another religion. Any and every religion under the sun was allowed, permitted, even encouraged under the Roman Empire so long as what you taught did not undo another religion. It was all about tolerance, so long as what you said didn't conflict with someone else. Sound familiar? Folks, Scripture says that there's nothing new under the sun. We're experiencing this in the U.S. as, as this pluralism and tolerance and moral relativism and stuff. Like, everything is fair. It's all about coexisting stickers. So long as you don't talk that, well, there's only one God or there's only one way, then that's bad, that's wrong, that's not allowed there whatsoever. So anyway, that charge is true, and the accusations work. Look at verse 22. It says that the crowd gets riled up, the crowd gets rowdy, and before Paul and Silas give a defense, the magistrates have Paul and Silas stripped naked and beaten with rods. That sounds pleasant. That sounds good. They're handed over to what are called lictors, 
which means rod bearers. Like in the big cities in antiquity, in this part of the world, there were these lictors, rod bearers, and they would beat people who were lawbreakers with what were called fasces. A fasces was not just a rod. It was a bundle of rods tied together. And then they would take that bundle of rods and lay down a smackdown on anyone that the magistrates say, go nuts. Go nuts on that person. So they are publicly humiliated. How would any of us like to be stripped down naked in front of others? No. And how many of us would like to receive a public caning? No. Okay, that's what these two get, Paul and Silas. Verse 23 tells us that they receive many blows. Many. And then the, the jailer specifically told, keep them safely. So after they're stripped naked and after they're beat down, I want you to take them somewhere and keep them safely, which is what the, how they would say, keep them under tight security. And then in verse 24, we're told that they're thrown into the prison. But not just the prison, specifically the inner prison, which is to say the dungeon. So stick them in the dungeon. Now, I don't think that they're going to go anywhere anytime soon. They just got a Harnett County beatdown. So, like, they just got a serious beating. So I don't know that you need to throw them in the dungeon, but that is where they go. They go to the dungeon. It gets worse than that. They're put in stocks. Verse 24, their legs are put in stocks, which back then, this was a torture device. That it basically, just imagine this, your legs are spread as far as they can be, and they're locked in that position until they let you go. So the severe pain, the cramping of being in that position for two hours, three hours, three days, who knows? You ain't walking for a while when you come out of this thing. This jailer treats them as if they are the worst of citizens. They are enemies of the state. Now, how would you react? What would you do if that were you? Now, put yourself in their shoes. What would you do if that were you? All they ever did was obey God. All they ever did was show their devotion to God, to Jesus. All they ever did was go where God told them to go. All they ever did was tell truth and grace and love to other people. All they did in Philippi was lead a lady to Christ, help this girl from being tormented. And here they are, naked, beaten, thrown in a dungeon, put in a torture device. How would you react? Confused? Bitter? Angry? God, why, why, why have you let this happen to me? What are you doing? What's going on, God? You better fix this quick. A lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of confusion. It's late that night tortured in a dungeon, their bodies aching. And that night, what do Paul and Silas do? Verse 25. They pray and they sing. They sing to God. In the stocks. Silas, you awake? Yeah. How you feeling? Not all right. I've been all right. This ain't it. I know, man, me too. I got an idea. Let's sing to God. Let's sing to God. Instead of lamenting the deplorable condition they sit there, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Like instead of being bitter and instead of complaining and groaning, instead of saying, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, they're saying, God's steadfast love endures forever. 
they worship God. They praise God. They, they give adoration to the Lord. Is that not absurd? Is it not absurd? Does that not sound completely weird and contrary to our human thinking and our rationing? That's absurd. And what, why in the world would Paul and Silas, in the worst, darkest, most miserable of moments, why would they turn right then to worship God? And it's because of love. Because of love. Because the sincerity, the authenticity, the, the passion of the love that they had for God. Every single one of us this morning, every one of us in this room right now, we need to hear what I'm about to say. Whether it is for the first time or whether it is for the 10,000th time. This is a truth that over. over comes other things. It is a truth that is the most profound truth. It is the truth that is the most wonderful truth for any human ear to hear at any time, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time. So I want you to slow down. Wherever you are, if you're distracted right now, stop. Pause. Let's take captive our thoughts. And I want you to listen and I want you to receive these words. God loves you. God loves you. No matter what you have gone through in your life, God loves you. No matter what you've done, how awful or terrible it may be, God loves you. No matter what laws you've broken, no matter how broken you may be, God loves you. Are you listening? Are you listening? No matter what you look like, no matter what you dress like, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've been through, what you're going through, God loves you. The one and only true living God, the God who is infinite and immortal and eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing and always present, he loves you. Do you hear me? Like you're receiving that. God loves you. Before the foundations of the earth, before Genesis 1-1, before he spoke the universe into existence, he knew you and he loved you. In time, God knitted you in your mother's womb. He made you. And folks, he's been with you every step, every second, every moment. God has been right there with you because he loves you. And 2,000 years ago, God himself, he left his throne in heaven, his royal courts, his place of bliss. He left that and he came into this world because he loves you. And he came here and he lived among us. He looked like us. We called him Jesus. And he went to a cross to pay for your sin, to take all of your guilt and your shame and your burden, to remove that off of you. He took it himself and he paid the price. He died our death. His body was broken. His, his blood was shed. He sacrificed himself for you because he loves you. Jesus is God, and he died for you. You got you to gotta sit there. You got to sit in that for a while, folks. Not some religious teacher or some religious leader. No, God himself gave his life and descended into death for you because he loves you. He did it for your good. God desires what is right for you, what is good for you, what is best for you. He desires for you to know him, to enjoy a thriving, living relationship with him where your, your sin, your despair is removed off of you and you walk in this newness of life with hope and with joy, with peace, thriving in your soul. 
And he wants that for you, and he's done that for you, and he offers it to you because he loves you. He loves you. He wants you to be with him, not just today, right, in the here and now, but with, with him forever in eternity and enjoying his glory, all because he loves you. That is the reason Paul could sing to the Lord, is that he had tasted of God's grace, He knew, he knew, he personally knew God. He had received the love of God and he had been transformed by the love of God. Transformed, changed, radically changed. Not too long before this story, you know that Paul was no different than those slave girls' owners. Paul was no different than those magistrates. Paul was no different than the jailer. Because not too long before this story took place, Paul hunted down Christians himself, tormented them, executed them, persecuted them for their faith in Jesus. No different than what they were doing to him in this story. But then one day, Jesus encountered Paul and Paul met him and everything changed. Everything changed changed. And from that day, Paul entered into this new life of getting to know God and communing with God and having this relationship with the Lord and enjoying God's daily presence in his life more and more. And so Paul grew to love the God who loved him. And that's why Paul and Silas were able were able to sing in the worst of moments because they knew that God loved them, that God had saved them out of their sin, that God had breathed new life into them, that God had uh, shined his light into their life, and that they would forever be in his presence. See, that's why they could sing in the darkest of moments. True worship, absurd worship, is about perspective. Worship has nothing to do with our circumstances. Hear that. Worship has nothing to do, nothing to do with our circumstances. There's another story in the Bible of another dude named Job. Whole book about him. About you to read it if you never have. Wealthy man, has everything. And in one day, he loses everything everything, all of his possessions, all of his wealth, all of his livestock, everything, including his children, are taken away from Job. And you know how he reacts? Naked I came into the world. Naked I'll go out. The Lord gives. The Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship has nothing to do with our circumstances. Worship. We don't worship God because things are good. We worship God because he is good. Because he is right. Because he is all that we need. All that we need to experience is his spirit within us and his love upon us and his grace before us. That's all that we need. He is our fullness and our satisfaction. This world, this life is gone just like that. And then what's left is eternity, and that's what matters. That's all that matters. We worship God because he has made himself available to us. And at this, some people may, may rebut back a little bit. Well, that's people from the Bible. So let's bring it into our modern day. Tomorrow is the three-year anniversary of an awful travesty that took place. On February 12th, 2015, ISIS militants took 21 Christians on a beach in Libya and beheaded them. They videotaped it for the world to see. They took these 21 Christians hostage and under threat of their life, they said, denounce Jesus, reject your faith. They say, turn back from the delusion of the cross is how they would say it. And these Christians, they knew that if they stayed true, that they would lose their life, that their wife would be widowed, and that their kids would grow up without daddy. And they stayed true to Christ. And do you know 
what they did when they were kneeling on that beach. As the blade is being applied to their neck, do you know what they were doing? They were singing. They sang to God of his greatness. They loved on God in that moment, the worst of moments. Said, do what you will. Do what you will. Is that absurd? It's not absurd to those of us who know the love of God. It is not absurd to those of us who know that the minute that we breathe our last breath upon this planet, our eyes will wake up and we will see Jesus face to face. Folks, I, I pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are under that kind of threat and persecution. May God give them safety and security and protection and strength and grace to endure. I don't know how they do it each and every day. I am grateful to be in a place where yet that does not happen. But let me tell you, even though we're here where it's relatively safe, we can still be absurd worshipers. In our own right, in our own way, we can still be authentic and sincere and heartfelt and passionate and exuberant in our worship. When you get a flat tire, give praise to God. When you're stuck in traffic, sing to God. If 21 Christians three years ago could kneel on a beach and as the saw is applied to their neck, praise God, surely we can do that when our boss is a jerk and cusses us out. When your spouse hurts you, voice God's praise. When you lose your job, when you get cancer, joyfully declare the goodness of God. Be, be rejoicing in Him. Be glad in the Lord. If we truly believe in Jesus, we can't blend into the world because the world, when those things happen, they cuss, they groan, they complain about everything. But absurd worshipers, anthemers, what we do is that in that moment, it's like, yeah, that's not ideal. However, my God is good. We don't blend in. We don't conform. We stand out. We're weird because of that. We're awkward because of that. Because we take the opportunity to show ourselves, to show the world that we, in fact, do love the Lord. And we express it. We demonstrate it. We sing and just know that, that worshiping God is simply drawing near to the Lord. That's really all it is. It's just, God, I just want to be close to you, so I'm going to sing. I'm going to turn on K-Love or his radio or Pandora to, to All Sons and Daughters Station or, or when I'm praying by myself at home or when I'm gathered with my church family. It's just about drawing near to the Lord and enjoying his presence. And there's something about drawing near to the, to the Lord that lifts our countenance. Like the goal of worship is not to feel good. The goal of worship, the aim of worship is God himself. But as we rejoice in him, it does lift our spirits. How about another example? So years ago, I was on staff at another church. Had a young teenage girl in our youth group. Name's Dara. Born with spina bifida. If you don't know what that is, it's a birth defect that doesn't allow the spinal column to develop the way that it should. So she was never able to walk among a host of other complications. So this is several years ago. She's probably 15, 16 at the time. So Sunday morning, during the youth group, she rolls up to the front. And she turns and they give her a microphone. And she, and she said this, and I'll never forget it. I remember exactly where I was standing. I was on the back wall. There's like 80 other teenagers in the room. And she's like, I'm in a wheelchair. But I can't wait to be in heaven when I get to run around with all of you. Dara, her sweetheart, did not lament her wheelchair 
her spina bifida. God's grace was sufficient for her. Like she, test, she gave testimony that morning, God loves me. She knew it. It's like, this wheelchair will pass. I'm going to be fully healed one day. Folks, that's absurd worship, right? To be able to rejoice in the worst of situations and say, I love God, he loves me, it's all good. That's real. And let me tell you that Dara, because I knew her for years, she didn't like wake up that morning and she was like thinking that. She grew into that. And that's how it is with the rest of us. We have to grow into worship. You have to learn it. You have to learn how to be an authentic, absurd, wonderful worshiper of God. The only way we will ever get to a place where we worship God in the worst of times is by learning to do so in the good times. So I ask, will you commit to taking steps in your daily life where you begin to develop a posture of praise and celebration to God. Sunday morning, lift your voice, your, your countenance. Sing loudly. Who cares who's next to you? They don't, they're not listening to you. They don't care. Just sing. Lift your hands. It's actually biblical. You don't have to lift them high. They can be right here. At a former church, one of the, the, the sweetest displays of worship every Sunday was this young teenage girl. She sat like this every day, every time. It's wonderful. But she was, her heart was in it. I remember the first time I ever raised my hands in a worship service. Awkward. I was so afraid. The dude next to me was a friend of mine, and he was like one of those ones and zeros, really butt, buttoned-up, starchy-type Christian Right, it's all academic, right? Turns out he was a non-believer and he renounced Christianity. So here I was concerned about what uh, uh, someone who renounced all things Christian cared. But anyway, I, I cared, but it, I was in my late 20s and I, I just was in a worship service and I just felt compelled. I was like, I'm supposed to raise my hand, Psalm 63. Raise your hands. Like, and it was short and sweet. I, don't, I think it was like... And for the last 15 years, I've, God has been working, and there's like a freedom. Like, I'm just letting my posture exude something that's happening in my heart and my mind. I'm, it's just an act of humility. Like, God, just you, not me. You, I lift you. I, I love you. I, I need you. It's all you. Like, that, that's all that is. And it doesn't have to be demon necessarily that demonstrable. But, man, just... Will you, will you do this? And I tell you what was more awkward than ever doing that in public was doing it by myself the first time. When I sat quietly in my, my office and I'm like, and even in the quiet privacy of my office, I kid you not, I went. <laughs> I'm like, I praise you, God. I, I just, my life is yours. And there's a freedom in that. So you do it in your car, you do it at home, you do it with your spouse, you do it with your kids, you do it at church. So will you commit to a life of praising God? The word hallelujah is a combination of two words. Hallel Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. Hallel means praise. More specifically, celebrate. When we say hallelujah, what we're saying is celebrate God. So all I'm asking is, will you today commit to beginning to take steps in your daily life in order to foster a posture of celebration, whatever is going on in your life? We have plenty of reason to celebrate. For neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything ever created can remove us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can. We have reason to celebrate. So will you bow your heads?
Will you pray right now? Will you begin to praise God right now, just right there in the quietness of your own heart? Maybe you're here this morning and you're seeking God or you're seeking hope, you're seeking answers. You know about Jesus, but you've never taken that step to actually trust in Jesus. So I would ask, why not today? There is no reason why that step cannot be taken today. You are not here by accident. God has worked out details without you knowing it that has brought you into this room this morning. And he wants you to know him, to have a relationship with him. So will you take that step? And all you really need to do is to go before God and say, God, I I believe you are who you say you are. And Lord, I, I want to surrender to you. I want to give my life to you. I'm, I'm tired of the life that I've been pursuing. Lord, it has not resulted in what I wanted. It's only caused hurt and pain. There's hopelessness and despair. And I want the life that you offer. I, I want freedom. Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. But I hear today, Lord, that you love me, and I want that. Give me the life that only you can live. Fix me. Heal me. If you're praying that prayer this morning from the sincerity of your heart for the first time, would you raise your hand? All eyes are closed. All heads are bowed. For the rest of us, what is keeping you from celebrating God each and every day? Will you commit and say, God, help me Teach me, make me to be like Paul and Silas, to be like Job, to be like those 21 on that beach, to be like Dara, that no matter what befalls me, I will praise your name. God, show me what is hindering that from being a reality. Loose me of that, free me of that, Lord, that I may rejoice in you always. Lord, I pray that you would teach us all to be these absurd worshipers, anthemers, praising your name always and always, giving you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.